Amen. All right. So we left off last week. We saw Gideon was testing God's faithfulness. And now tonight, God's going to test Gideon's. As we, um, Gideon is one of the most fascinating people in the scripture uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, primarily because there's so much real estate given to Gideon. And so there's so, you know, we were talking uh, earlier this week about the fact that we could do uh, probably an eight-week sermon series on Gideon. Easy. And he's so misunderstood. I'm not really sure how that's happened, but um, especially when we get to next week, you'll see that... um, Gideon is oftentimes portrayed as one thing, but when you actually look at the Scripture, you find that he's, in fact, another. Now, there's a principle here that we need to make note of in in the beginning, and that's that God doesn't call the brave, but He makes brave those He calls. And so you see that there's always with God a mission within the mission. God has a mission, but there's a mission that has to be accomplished before the mission. And Gideon is not your typical hero. I mean, we meet him. He's cowering down in a wine press, uh, threshing wheat, hiding from the enemies, which, you know, on one hand, we have to give him credit. They were, the, the God's people were under great oppression. They were grossly outnumbered and outmanned. The Midianites were, were just... Uh, you know, so much more powerful than uh, Gideon and his people were. But at the same time, um, we pick up the story having left off uh, Gideon just uh, going through that famous fleece moment with God where he's trying to get reassurance again from God. There's, as all that's going on, there's 150,000 Amalekites uh, who have joined, or and Midianites that are encamped down in the valley of Jezreel. So there's 150,000 soldiers ready to pounce on the Israelites. And, you know, Gideon is confident to a degree of what God's called him to do. He's led his 32,000 men, which, again, it's easy to be critical, but you've got to try to put yourself in his shoes. 32,000 men, he's led them to the, the edge of the valley. Um, he knows there's 150,000 men down there. He knows that they are um, way more armed uh, and, and capable than he is and his 32,000 men. But... What you, what you see is this, this occurrence in Gideon that happens in our lives all the time where just as the fears of what God says he will do begin to fade or fall away, new fears about how he plans to do it arise. I mean, Gideon, on one hand you could say, well, what could possibly be the problem? You've had a face-to-face conversation with the angel of the Lord. God has miraculously intervened in your life in multiple ways. You have 
uh, put a fleece out before God. God is clearly speaking to you, clearly leading you to do this. But if you think about it, we do the same thing all the time. When we get to the place where we are we receive what it is that God's called us to do, we then get hung up on how. On how. And that's always a danger that you need to be aware of because the how is almost always none of our business. God's not going to tell you how. He rarely ever ever tells us how. He gives us the what, and you'll see that as this uh, unfolds. Uh, so get your Bibles open to, or the ones in front of you, to page 229 so you can follow along. So Judges 7, that's 229. Sorry, I should have told you that earlier. So you would have had five pages if we were to put all this text on here. 229, Judges 7. So... Seven verse one. Then Jeroboam, so that's his Gideon's nickname, because he tore down the. Remember last week, Pastor Brian told us about how he he went at night and tore down the the idols built to Baal. Right. Well, that nickname just means contender of Baal. So since he did that, everyone's calling him by this nickname. So he's getting a, you know, a reputation. So that is Gideon. And all the people who were with him rose early in a camp beside the spring at Herod. And the camp of the Midians was north of them by the hills of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, if you think about what God just said right there, God is giving the why. God will oftentimes give us the what. Sometimes he gives us the why. A lot of times you can, you'll find the why in the pages of Scripture in the character and nature of God. And sometimes God does this to just, you know, be in, in his grace and kindness. So he gives them the why. But he's still, as you're going to see, hung up on the how. And so God's in the business of destroying self-confidence and boasting without replacing it with shame or self-hatred, which often happens in the world, which only causes one to seek out the approval of others, which would be counterproductive to what God's trying to accomplish. And so self-confidence and boasting are going to be detrimental to the accomplishment of the mission that God calls us to. But again, remember, there's always a mission in the mission. God's got to do a mission in us before we're able to do the mission that He's called us to do. So the biblical alternative to, is self-denial. is where we find zero confidence in our flesh. That's always the goal and all of our strength in knowing God. You see, when the world snatches your self-confidence, it's replaced with an unhealthy shame or self-hatred or whatever the case may be, which is not helpful, not productive, and not of God. 
what God does is God wants to, he wants to diminish our self-confidence in a healthy, positive way and establish our confidence in him. And so a great text for you to pay attention to would be Jeremiah 9, where the Bible says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, or the mighty man in his might, nor let the rich man in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So boasting in him means we trust in what we know about him infinitely more than what we know about our circumstances. What do we do? What would you, if, if, if you were to think about some uncomfortable situation right now. So, for example, supposing today you were called by the doctor, went in, sat down, the doctor looked across the desk at you and said, you have cancer. Let's be honest. The first thing most of us would do is go into major investigative work. We would start Googling and calling and researching and trying to find out every possible bit of information we could about this cancer. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad idea to do, but here's what I'm saying. Is the best thing you can do obsess about the problem? Is it ever most healthy in a situation? And this is what we do almost universally. We have a problem in our life. We obsess over the problem. And if you stop and think about what do we expect to come from that? How is that going to be? There could be some marginal benefits, certainly. But is, the, is your highest and greatest response to situations and circumstances beyond your control to know every single detail about the circumstance? Rarely that would be the case. Verse 3, Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, God says, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So of the 32,000, over two-thirds of them, God says, just find out who's afraid and get rid of all of them. And so there's a lot of things that this tells us. I mean, first of all, there's a lot of people who, were, who had responded to the call but who really didn't want to be there. They were afraid, but they didn't want anybody to know. And so God just tells Gideon, to, well, let's just get down to the truth let's find out who who really wants to be here and who's not or who's willing to be here or who's not or who's afraid and who's not and so he does and over two-thirds leave and then the lord says to gideon the people are still too many take them down to the water and i will test them for you there 
And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brings them down to the water. This very famous, again, uh, you know, it's passages like this that oftentimes, it could be embarrassing to be a Christian, by the way, you know, the things that I've heard done here. But anyway, and the Lord says to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But the rest of them knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give you the, the Midianites into your hand and all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets and they set all the rest of it of Israel every man to his tent but remained the 300 men and the camp and the camp of the Midians were below them in the valley now I'm sure that you've heard ridiculous things I've heard ridiculous things I've heard all the nonsensical things about well what was all that about some people lapping water like a dog and other people kneeling down to drink and and then people just start making up stuff, which is really foolish. It's foolish. You've probably heard people tell you, oh, well, you know, the ones who were, you know, the ones who drank this way could still hold their weapons in their hand. You heard that? I've heard that a thousand times. Is there any mention of weapons? When the 300 went to war, went to war, what did they take? It's right there in the Bible. What, does, what did they take? Did they take weapons? They took two things. Provisions, which is what? Food. And what was the other thing they took? So where did we get this from? We just made it up. You know why? Because we feel this, compel, this, this compulsion to be able to explain this logical reason why God did this. So we just start making up stuff. So why did God do this? Because he wanted to. Because clearly, God likes dogs more than cats. Right? In other words... God is on a mission. He's doing something through Gideon. This is exactly how this goes in your life. God's doing something in your life. He's never doing something in your life for nothing. He's doing something in your life for something. So there are things that are going on in your life right now, some of which you're aware of, others of which you're not aware of. But God is doing things all the time to move you in the direction he wants you to move, to get you to see things he wants you to see, to get you to understand that he's a God who's in the details and he's sovereign and he's good and he loves you and he's working in things. And whether you acknowledge those things or not, he's still working. And then there are these moments where we, we understand that God's in something and then he does something and we're paralyzed with, well, why did God do that? As if we need some, in other words, if, 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 if you put yourself in this situation and God's working in your life like he's working in Gideon's life and you know that God did something, 
In other words, you understand that there's a, you know, God's moving you in a direction. He's healing a relationship. He's working in your marriage. He's working in your children. He's working in your, your, your life. He's drawing you into people's lives to be a witness to them. He's growing you spiritually and he's taking you through something that's a valley. Whatever it is. What is the benefit? Be careful in those situations that you're not standing still trying to sort out the... Listen, if God did something, do you know what I need to know about that? All I need to know is God did it. That's all I need to know. That's it. I don't need to... I don't need to figure out why some kneel down and why. Because what do, see, Gideon knows what this is about. This is about God glorifying himself in the life of, in the, in the Midianites, in this battle with the Midianites, right? So if God wants 300 people to go, the point is the 300 people. The point's not how we got to the 300 people, Right? So I want you to apply that to your life. I want you to apply that to your situation. And I want you to think about, well, well, what is God doing in my life right now? I mean, if God's working in every life in this room, and He is, what is He doing in your life right now? Tonight, what is He doing? You should be figuring that out. And when you figure that out... Don't get stumped up on all the nuances. Just if you know that God's doing it, go with it. Because it's God. See, to teach us to trust, God will often remove whatever we're finding our security in other than Him. And do you know what, you know what He does in my life? The same thing He does in your life. He's going to do it in ways that aren't going to be the way we would have done it. It's, and, and a lot of times it's not going to make sense to us. It's not going to be at the time I thought it would happen or the way that I thought it was going to happen. It's going to be in a way that, but here's how he's going to do it, in a way that I know that it's him. And so I can't tell you how many times in my life and how many times in your lives that I've been involved in the situation where God's there. And you look at me or I look at you and you say, well, why? And I say, I don't know. But it's God. And that's all we need to know is it's God. If you think about this whole situation, before the battle, Gideon has 32,000 men. Verse against 135,000, that's four to one odds. Four to one odds. Now, I'm, I'm giving you this not because I, I mean, I'm, I'm encouraging you to ignore this information, but I'm giving this to you to prove this to you. That then God reduces the army to 300, making it 450 to one, which is... Militarily speaking, it's suicide is what it is. It's complete suicide, which is exactly how God wants to work it. 
So you think about this. We always think we, we get in a, in a situation, we get in a circumstance, a, a job circumstance, a financial circumstance, a relational circumstance, a health circumstance, and this is what happens. We fixate on the fact that the solution to the circumstance is more of something. It's more of something. If we only had more of something or a different version of that something, which is basically the same thing as more of something, a better something, the circumstance that we're fixated on would be resolved. That's what we think. So we've we've got a problem and we think if we had more money or more time or more friends or more help, or more stuff, or more something, it would fix the problem. But what if God's ultimate priority... See, God's okay with more, but it's not His ultimate priority. What if His ultimate priority in your life was more faith? What if it was? How would he create circumstances that would breed more faith in your life through more? More poverty, more suffering, more confusion, more frustration. That's why none of you are smiling right now. You look like I just told you your dog got run over just right now. That's what you look like. You're all looking at me like, is that bad news? How is that bad news? That's good news. You know why that's bad news? Because, listen, could it be that that if we're not careful, we could actually want something? More than more faith. What? What what, what could you want more than more faith? But you see, when when you're reminded of what leads to more faith, then you get all sad looking. should be happy nothing is more valuable than faith no gift is greater than deeper faith and so so think about it the first so god prunes down the army in two ways and i don't want to belabor this but i want you to get this so the first way he does it is completely practical pragmatic and sensible just find out who's afraid and get rid of all of them. Now, that makes perfect sense, and it's biblical because the book of Deuteronomy tells you to do that when it's talking about uh, uh, warfare. But then the second pruning is the complete opposite. It makes absolutely no sense. It sounds like one of the most bizarre things you've ever read in the Bible. 
on purpose. See, God does, does this, and then he does this. And he's trying to teach us through Gideon. He's teaching Gideon and us at the same time. If dependence is the objective, weakness is an advantage. It's an advantage. It's so easy to believe something in your head and say it with your mouth and reject it in your heart. Most of us in the room could finish the sentence. When the Lord told, he told Paul, he said, it's, it's in your weakness that my strength is made perfect. That's not new information to anybody in here. But is that in your heart? Is it in your heart? When you face circumstances, that are causing you to be uncomfortable or to be bewildered or confused or anxious or frustrated or whatever. Do you rely upon that truth? And here's the thing. The answer is no if your first response is to try to investigate or solve or fix or whatever the circumstance is. Shouldn't, shouldn't our ability and ingenuity and creativity, shouldn't it be, shouldn't it be a last resort for the believer? Shouldn't it be? Shouldn't our first response to circumstances be, yes, Lord, I want more faith. And I know how weak I am because I'm looking at this and I'm weak. Yeah. Look at verse 9. But God is so good. The same night the Lord says to him, arise and go down against the camp. For I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid, look at that. But now to me, I'm thinking, is that necessary? Have we not? What else would we need? But again, it's easy to say that when you're not Gideon. But when it's me, Oh, I appreciate this. So God says, but if you're afraid, go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay there along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand is on the seashore in abundance. 
And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And the comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. I'm going to preach a sermon one day before I die on Pura. A whole sermon on him. But it isn't going to be tonight. That's the only place in the Bible he's mentioned. And I'm fascinated by the fact that God said take that particular guy with him. But I'm not talking about that. We're moving on. Gideon needs to visit the camp. He goes down to the camp at night, sneaks down with this one guy, gets there. When he gets there, he overhears a soldier telling another soldier about the dream. And then the other soldier who hears the the dream interprets the dream as, well, that's got to be Gideon, who God's given all the Midianites, which is us, into his hand. And the dream is of a piece of wonder bread floating through the air, hits the tent, and the tent falls over. Now, I know what you're expecting me to say. This is just like the dogs lapping up the water. Don't get hung up on the... Well, I might say that, except for this is not just like that. Because there's, there's information there. First of all, what hits the tent? Not just a piece of bread. It's, not a, it's basically a, a flying biscuit is what it is. That's basically what it is. But it's a barley cake, which is an odd thing to say. Why is it a barley cake? What is a barley cake? You know what a barley cake is? A barley cake is the spam of Israel. Barley cake is what you eat when you're broke and poor and have no wheat. That's the, the, the lowest thing you, anytime you see barley, that's poverty. So this weak, pitiful barley cake knocks over the tent of the Midianites. So there is symbolism in that, right? Yeah. Notice a couple things about this. First of all, the principle that God goes, and I would say way, you should write way out of his way to reassure his people. In other words, whenever God is working in your life, which is right now, and he's working for a reason, which is right now, whatever he's doing, he's doing for a purpose, and he's leading you in a direction, and you want to obey that, and you want to be aware of that, and as he's doing that, one of the things he does is he, he reassures you along the way. But one, one of the reasons why is because he has to, because we never listened the first time. None of us do. So we need 
reassurance and we need confirmation. And God's doing that to Gideon. He does that in my life and he does that in your life. The Bible is filled with confirmation. Every promise in the Bible is for assurance and confirmation. The whole book of 1 John is there for confirmation. Over and over the Bible gives us confirmation and reassurance. But I want you to notice that God also asks us to take risks on the way to assurance. See, God tells, now now think about this. God tells Gideon, if you're afraid, now just think this through. You're Gideon, think it through. God says to you, hey, Gideon, hey you, if you're afraid, sneak down at night to the edge of the camp of the 130,000 people that want to kill you. Now, God could have just told him what he wanted to tell him. But he didn't. He said, if you need reassurance, take this risk and I'll give you reassurance. That's how he works in your life. He wants you and me to respond in obedience to the step that he's told us to take, and then he gives us assurance and confirmation so that we can then take another step. Do I know where the steps are ultimately leading? No, I do not. I don't know the how. I may or may not know the what. Usually the only thing I know is the why because I can verify it through the Word of God. So he calls him to to do something dangerous to gain confidence. Well, yeah. See, if you're trying to teach one of your children to be confident in something, what are you going to do? You're going to teach them to do it on their own. The goal is to get them to, so you, you have them watch you, and you, it's the same thing we do in D groups in discipleship. And you're building confidence in someone. That's what God's doing to him. That's what he does in your life, in my life. So he reveals our, so God reveals himself. We take a step, God reveals himself. We take a step. God reveals himself. Deep calls to deep. Draw near to God and God will. But guess what? If I don't step, then he doesn't draw near to me. See, when I step in obedience, he draws near to me. And I step again and he draws near to me. I guarantee you there's a ton of people in this room right now God's calling you to do something. He's been leading you to do something. He's been showing you and speaking to you, and you haven't moved. You're petrified. And you, right now, your heart is beating, not because I know, but because you know that God knows that I'm right. And your heart is beating, and you're petrified, and you're, and you're thinking, all I need is some assurance, and I'm telling you, God's telling you right now, if you would take a step towards Him... Take the scary step that he's calling you to take, and he'll draw near to you. He's not calling you to run to the end. It's just a lamp unto your feet. It's not a spotlight to the end of the path. See, God often gives us what we need as we do what he's asked us to do. Isn't that exactly what he does? Yes. That's exactly what he does. 
So faith is built best on mission. And that's when we're going and serving and sacrificing and following Christ in, in the places that stretch us. And so again, it's just like I say this all the time. Then Brian said it last week. He even reminded me, he said, you've heard Pastor Tony say this a thousand times. And here we are again. It's just the clean your room principle. If God tells you to clean your room and you don't clean your room, whatever it else you're talking to God about, he ain't hearing any of it until you clean your room. Which is exactly how any parent would be. He told you to clean your room. Clean your room. Stop, talk, stop asking if you can do something Friday night with your friends. Stop asking if you can have the car keys. Stop asking for $10. Stop asking for... Sh- zip your mouth until your room's clean. Nothing else is happening. Right? And whatever else is happening is all pointing to and, and nudging you towards what? Cleaning your room. Boy, that right there is a life-guiding principle. So the dream Gideon hears still does not reveal the how of God's plan, does it? No, it doesn't. But look at how great God is. God orchestrates this event to where when, when Gideon arrives, God has this man have this dream say that at the exact moment that Gideon's there and has the other man there to interpret the dream the way the, that God wants him to, all of this is orchestrated for whom? For Gideon. It's all orchestrated for Gideon. If we knew how many times we walked into a conversation, it wasn't a happenstance. Or, or someone who... God used someone to speak something into your life at that moment, in that particular time, for that reason. Is that It's exactly what's happening right here. Gideon's lack of experience or the odds against him and the circumstances, none of that has changed. None of it. But God simply changed Gideon's heart by confirming the what. See, now Gideon is all of a sudden like ready to go. No longer seems to be worried. But here's what he knows. He knows God's with him. Does he know how this is going to work? Nope. But he knows this. That's God and God's with me. What do you know? What do you know? Is there anybody in here? tonight who would say I don't know if God's with me well then you don't know if you know God because if you know God he's made it crystal clear he's with you so what's the problem what's the problem what's holding us up what's stopping us people who lack assurance in God's presence in their life almost a hundred percent of the time the reason you lack assurance is because you're unwilling to take a risk. If you would step out in faith, God would reassure you. But you're frozen in fear, and you want God to reassure you, but the reason you have no assurance is because you won't step out in faith. Risk 
in the kingdom of God leads to assurance. Risk, it leads to assurance. All right. So, verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Boy, he is confident now. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put bazookas and ARs and hand grenades and tanks and air defense missiles and, no, trumpets into their hands. Oh, and everyone's terrified of empty jars that have torches inside of them. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the, for the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. So there would have been three watches during the night, right? Three watches divided into four hours. So the middle watch would have been 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, why would you go right at the middle watch? Because the first watch just gets off duty, and they've been up all night, and they're really sleepy. The second watch is about to go on duty, so they're real groggy because they just woke up, and the third watch is sound asleep. So it's the perfect time for an ambush. And so at the middle watch, when they had just set that watch, they blew the trumpets, smashed the jars with their hands, Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held it in their left hands, the the torches, and in their right hands, the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as to Beth something. Then uh, it's really going to be funny if I say that. And Zerath. And, uh, but you almost got me. And as far as the border of Abel-Mahola and Tobeth. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all of Manasseh and they pursued after Midian. So what happens is when all this commotion breaks out in the middle of the night, the, the jars are smashing. The, now imagine you're in this valley of Jezreel, 135,000 men, and all of a sudden around you, you hear all this commotion. You look up and you see all of these torches around you. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I know this. I know that when armies marched at night, they would carry torches, would they not? And who would carry the torch? The person in the front would carry the torch to see where he could go so he would lead them. So if you were down in the middle of a valley and you looked up and you saw, you heard all this racket and trumpet blowing, because where's the trumpet guy? In the front. So it looks like you've got all, every one of those torches and trumpets is a, has a whole line of soldiers behind them, which in reality... It's just trumpets and torches. But the Bible says 
It's not that that worked because the Bible's clear that God turned them against each other. They go crazy. They kill each other. And they all die. And no Israelite loses his life. I mean, it's not like the Israelites killed them all because they don't have anything to kill them with. God did it all. So the Lord is the one who does the saving. We're at best the cleanup crew chosen to enjoy the fruit of God's labor. See, they just come in behind what God did. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that the whole plan with the jars and the trumpets and the torches, the Bible doesn't tell us that was God's idea. There's no record of God telling Gideon to do that. So do I know if God told Gideon to do that or Gideon came up with that on his own? I know neither. My suspicion would be, just based on my personal experience with God, is that Gideon just made that up. Because what happens is when you start walking in faith with God and God starts giving you assurance and confirmation in what he's called you to do, you start walking to the what? That guess what? I can't tell you how many times in my life. I have no idea the how. I only know the what. And when it happens, the how is really irrelevant. God's already determined he's going to do the what. So whatever I do, God's going to make it work for the what. That's what happens. He's just walking in faith. And so he had clay pots and torches. But it wouldn't have mattered if he'd had twigs and been slinging barley cake biscuits at them. It would have still worked the same. Remember, Shamgar, who fought with what? His ox goad. In other words, he just used the tool he was working in the field with. The same thing, Gideon uses what he has. You know what he has? He has trumpets, torches, and jars. He looked around, he said, all right, here's what we got. Trumpets, torches, and jars. So guess what we're going to use? See, once I'm confident, once you're confident in what God is, what His will is for us to do, which tons of times we don't have to wonder. We know. We know what the Bible says. So if that's what God's will is, see, we're so worried about how, we're, how are we going to talk to this person? All that matters is we know that it's God's will for us to talk to that person. So if we would just go and open our mouth, guess what will happen? God will take care of it. That's what he'll do. He'll take care of it. See, Gideon's weakness becomes a source of strength. Isn't that amazing? It's the, very, it's the very point that all these times Gideon kept coming up with excuses after excuse after excuse of why not to do something. Now, it's a good opportunity for all of us to think about what we've learned about Gideon in these last two messages. Because it it will straighten out a lot of wrong thoughts about God. See, God specifically told Gideon
He said, Gideon, tear down those, your father's altars to Baal. Didn't he tell him to do that? And then Gideon, in fear, did it at night. And some of you relate to God as a God who said, didn't I tell you? Why did you do that at night? Why did you? Like you think God is the God that when you come with your report card, God goes, all A's and a B? You want to explain this B? But is that God? Is that the God we see in the Bible? Oh, the Old Testament God. He's so scary. And so here we are in the Old Testament. He's afraid. He does it at night. And God's fine. Listen, you know, I I want you to understand something. When God tells you to clean your room, and you don't want to clean your room, and you're afraid to clean your room, and you resist cleaning your room, and you... And what does God do? He just keeps pushing you and pressing you and using circumstances to move you in the direction he wants you to be. And then you know what you do sometimes? Sometimes you go up there and you do what my kids do. You half clean your room. Right? Don't we do that? We half clean it. And you know what I think God does? God doesn't sling everything back out on the floor and make us start over again. I think God gives us some reassurance in the half that we cleaned. And he's like, now, come on, let's get back in there and get it clean the right way. And matter of fact, I think a lot of times, you know what God does? Comes down beside us and helps us clean the rest of the way. Doesn't he? Yeah. And after everything that God's done, God says to Gideon, look, if you're afraid, go down here. And see, it would God the what didn't change. He'd given the Midianites into his hand. But God said, look, I understand. You still have fear in your heart. So if you go down there, you'll hear this dream. Now, he could have said, no, I'm not afraid. And it would have still, you know, he would have been successful, whatever he would have done. Who knows how it would have changed the story, but the outcome would have been the same. God's gracious towards us. And then at the end, the last two verses, Gideon sent messages through messengers throughout all the country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as uh, Beth Barah and along the Jordan. So you got the kings that flee and all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also to the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the wine presses of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Now, at the beginning of this story, we found the Israelites were being greatly persecuted by the Midianites. And the Midianites were coming down and, and rampaging and stealing all their crops and burning their houses and, you know, stealing their children and wives and everything else. And where were the Israelites during harvest time? Where was everybody when Gideon was down in the wine press hiding, trying to thresh wheat? 
Where did the Bible tell us everybody was? They were hiding where? In the rocks, in the caves. And don't you see what God does? The two princes, one is killed in the rocks, and the other one is killed in the wine presses. God uses the two things that were shameful in the beginning of the story for His glory at the end of the story. Now, do you see what happens in our lives when, when God works in our lives and we're... See, some, sometimes what happens is we've grown so accustomed to being ashamed of our journey, of our past, of our mistakes, of the things that have happened to us and the things that we've done. And all we've, been, we've grown so accustomed to being ashamed of them. But when you come in contact with a loving God who is sovereign and, and can do anything He wants to do with anyone He chooses to do it in any way, His desire is to use you for His glory. And so the most glorifying thing about you is His greatness and your weakness. You don't want to be ashamed. You don't want to be ashamed. God wants to take the things that were shameful and He wants to use them for His glory in your life. And listen, if you, if, if you I, I don't know how that would be possible around here, but you know, anything's possible. If you, if you run in, work in, live amongst, fellowship in a community or tribe of people in some way, shape, or form that, that pretends to be Christian, and when you bring up the shameful things of your past to give God glory, for what he's done, and they frown on that or condemn you or chastise you for that, you better get out of there. Because that's not Christian community. That's not Christian community. God wants to use the shameful things to bring glory to himself in your life. And so before that mission can take place, he's got to work the mission in you to get you over that, right? For those who would follow Jesus on mission, there's always a mission before the mission. You see, there's never an external mission until the internal mission is completed. God works in the vessel first. He never uses the vessel till he works in the vessel. So he fills the vessel, then he uses the vessel. So remember, if God's calling you to do something, then he's, he's either has been or is currently and will be working in you in order to prepare you for that. Or he already has, or whatever the case may be. But he's not looking for brave people. He makes the people he's looking for brave. That's what he does. The mission of God always begins 
in a man's heart before he's ready to fight any other battles. The first battle is always in your heart. It's always in your heart. You see, before you can throw off the, the enemies that are around us, we got to throw off the enemies that are within us. So be encouraged. See, the God of, the God of Gideon is your father. He's your father. That's good news. That's good news. Let's make it a, a priority in our life to desire faith more than anything. Faith. Deep calls to deep. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Gideon and allowing us to...